Welcome to The Bridges We Build with Abundance and Joy with Samantha Daisy. This is a special space to discuss aging loved ones and caregiving. How can you support yourself first and your loved one's physical, emotional, and spiritual well-being? It is possible. I'll present resources, tools, special guests, and experts all mixed in with lots of love. Why? So that you are not alone on your journey. I want to share my experiences as a social worker in a subacute unit for over six years and my loved one's diagnosis with Alzheimer's four years ago. My background in psychology, all these experiences led me to be here in this moment with all of you. Let's start building bridges for ourselves and with one another. Come on, let's go. Good morning, this is Samantha Daisy with The Bridges We Build, and I'm here with Anna Cantor as our guest today. I'm so excited to have you here, Anna. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Of course. And Anna has a business called Your Dementia Coach. She has very specific background from her personal experience and training that is incredibly helpful for families going through this experience. And I'm going to have her introduce herself and and speak to that specifically because her journey is unique. And I think it helps people understand how and why this is so important to you and why your skills matter. Thank you. Yes. Yes. I am, I am known as uh, your dementia coach on Instagram or coach Anna Cantor <laughs> was my former name. And I come from uh, about over a decade of experience managing my mother's dementia care. She was diagnosed with early onset Alzheimer's and frontotemporal lobe dementia in 2010. And I pretty much dropped my entire life, um, my goals and things that I had, you know, in the works to be her caregiver because it just kind of fell on my shoulders. I was the only daughter, the only girl in the family. My brothers were pursuing uh, school and college and my parents were divorced. And so it really fell on my shoulders. So I started caring for her. And then afterwards I, you know, moved her into a care home when she was about four years into the disease, because I realized it was just beyond my capabilities. Uh, she had some other conditions that I wasn't able to tend to and moved her into a care home and really felt a sense of loss for my purpose and was really working to kind of grieve in my own way. Um, and so I started working for advocate groups and um, trying to kind of pick up the pieces, you know, where I left them off before I started caring for her and thinking, you know, how do I, how do I take this journey and really turn it into something that can be, you know, positive and grow from it. And so fast forward uh, a few years, I've been um, trying to build my practice, my business as a dementia consultant. So doing other trainings and I recently did the TIPA Snow Positive Approach to Care training uh, to become a certified independent consultant. So I go into 
memory care homes and I coach and consult uh, the, the people who work there with the residents who are, um, you know, living with dementia as well as families um, of loved ones who have dementia and their spouses or their children. That's awesome. So when you're working with these families, so it could really be, it could be the spouse, it could be a child, and it could, I suppose, even be to some extent a, a caregiver that they're also hiring in the home to make sure that they're, maybe they've been a caregiver, but they don't know the, the nuances of mm-hmm. dementia or dementia at this stage in, in right. the progression. Right. So, so there's really, I, I kind of think that there's kind of two different, two different people or two different pillars of, of this and people who are attracted to my coaching practice. And those are those that may have, they may, they may be caregivers at the moment, they're care partners and they support their parent or their spouse. And they have certain behavioral challenges, certain communication style challenges. And, you know, one aspect of that is that they are having a lot of difficulty kind of with those day-to-day challenges of somebody who has dementia and all, you know, so many different types of dementia come with, you know, knowing the person who they were before the disease, the onset of the disease and knowing where they are in the progression of the, which stage they're in, and then giving them tools to communicate with that person, you know, in a way that really works to kind of what they have left. And then there's somebody who may have, you know, moved their loved one or their spouse or their parent into a home and they need help advocating for those people who are in a care home who are being cared for by professionals. And I think that, and then they may be looking for something to kind of, then this is where they kind of have that loss, that kind of void that I had after I moved my mom into her home, because I was wondering, what do I do now with my life? Because I had been caring for this person for about four years and that had been my whole life. And now I don't really I don't really recognize the person that I was before that. I have this new strength, you know, this new um, kind of, you know, openness and empathy. And I, I work with people who may want to sort of fill that void by allowing something into their lives that they just, they don't really know how to, how to find it. So maybe they learned a lot about caregiving and care partnering, and now they want to kind of pursue that mission for the greater good. And, you know, they want to kind of fill that void or, you know, they may, I, there was a a client who she cared for her parents for about 10 years. And finally they moved into a home and then she decided she wanted to be a flight attendant. So it didn't have anything to do with dementia, but just how does she build that confidence? You know, how does she get back into the, to the world and how does she kind of showcase her skills and really use that to her benefit in order to sort of accomplish something in her life that she was interested in pursuing. And I think you bring up such a a valuable point that we lose in this journey that, you know, this adversity, it it is an adversity. It is not easy to see the signs coming, to receive the diagnosis, to progress through the different, the different stages and phases with whether they're cognitive you know, behavioral or physically with the reduced abilities that happen with the loved one. So as as these things are happening before our eyes and sometimes with us, especially if it's a behavioral challenge, you know, 
we are, we can either be in denial, we can hide from it, or we can face it and be resilient. And I, I really feel that, you know, being in this space, it's, it's an honor to be in this intimate space with these families because it's really a dance and, and to create the mirror for them to see that this is an opportunity and how they can be resilient is so powerful. And it's such a, it's such a delicate, subtle nuance um, because this is not something that you can force on a family member. They really need to be ready to take it on. And sometimes they're not, sometimes they're just not ready. They're too angry, they're too sad, they're in denial. And there's all these different emotions and layers to the process. So when families are not ready because they're in denial or they're still angry or, or perhaps a bit of both, how, how do you guide them to get a bit closer to a space where they can look at what's in front of them? Well, that's, that's a really good question. It is true. You have to kind of approach with care and you have to be really delicate. And I think one thing about coaching, consulting families is that you can really establish, you know, my goal is to really establish a friendship and trust from the very beginning and kind of work with them knowing that I really have their back. And this is something that I am so passionate about. In fact, I, I used to blog when I was caring for my mom and I, you know, I wish I had done it longer and I wish I had been more onto it. And, and, but I remember I just read a blog post from 2013 and it was about developing this, this approach about post-traumatic growth instead of post-traumatic stress. And I just, I reread it and I thought, wow, this is kind of exactly like over 10 years ago or not 10 years ago, it was about seven years ago. You know, I wanted to, I wanted to create a place where I can, you know, help other people. Um, and so, yes, integrating families is really hard to build that trust and build that space. But I, I feel that the best tool for that is just let them know that any emotion, any thought they have, any feeling they have is okay. And let's work on those thoughts and those feelings. Um, let's work to, because the circumstances aren't going to change. Circumstances are facts. So your parent has dementia. It is a, it's the diagnosis and it's not going to get any better. It's going to perpetually get worse. And, and so I think that having almost kind of a good sense of what do they, what they call, you know, bedside manner. <laughs> right. Um, and I can pretty, I'm, I feel like I have a lot of, you know, good interpersonal skills so I can sort of read people and I can, you know, do they want to know? I think the biggest thing is knowing kind of what's happening next in the next stages of the disease and kind of preparing for them. And I would say that most people are really open to that. Okay. Um, and, you know, cause you don't want to, you know, you don't want to have some, have something go wrong and not have been prepared for it. Like somebody who wants yeah. to wander or somebody who's still driving a car. Right. And I think just presenting the facts and making sure that they are aware of, you know, what could happen. Um, 
and just making them feel safe. Yeah, I, I think those are all super important features and, and points. I, I like what you emphasized, emphasized, Dan, in terms of the acceptance that to accept what is because we can't do anything about this. And it is almost a type of surrender to just, because if we accept and surrender to the situation, then we're, we're given our power back to move through the situation with, with resilience and choices. Because if we're not accepting and we're not surrendering, <clears throat> then we can't see our options. We're super limited. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a big mindset shift. It's a big mindset shift. And I think, I think there's also a sense of sort of vulnerability there. You know, you have to be vulnerable and you have to, in a, in a good way, you know, not in a negative way, but you have to accept it. And I think what I really, really loved about the training that I did with Tipa Snow was she presented the facts and those are the, the brain changes that are happening with the person you know, and what do you retain? What do you lose? And what stage are you in that loss? And is there still something there? Um, and allowing uh, consulting with families and giving them tools, you know, when people start with dementia, they, they lose a lot more of their vision than I think we've noted. And I think science has noted in the past, and it's not something you really take in. And so when you're communicating with your voice, it's almost pointless because, I mean, you can communicate with your voice, but I think people are so much more, um, you know, they're so much more stimulated by, you know, music or, or, um, or pictures. Um, and so I think when you coach a client and you say, well, instead of saying something, why don't you show them the picture of it or do a motion with your hands, you know, and then there's kind of this aha moment and that just, you know, builds that trust and it just allows the care partner to see wow, there's really so much more that this person is capable of than I gave them credit for. Um, And I'm also learning on kind of shifting my language and saying care partner and not caregiver because it is a partnership, you know, and you, you are, have a person with dementia who was this incredible person before this disease started to take over and, you know, keeping their integrity and keeping their worth and, you know, maintaining their dignity, I think is so important. Um, and yeah, I like that distinction. I, I don't know that I've really heard it or taken it on before hearing care partner versus caregiver. And I really love your explanation of how and why that's important. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's something that I, you know, I have sort of social media and some specific individuals to thank for you know, helping, you know, me develop that vocabulary. And I don't, I don't, I also don't think there's anything wrong with saying caregiver because you are giving care to somebody. Um, But if you look at it as a partnership, I think you take some of the responsibility away from, from yourself. And that might help sort of alleviate the burden because I want care. I want people who are caring for, you know, loved ones with dementia to feel that they are empowered. Um, and that's kind of my, <laughs> I don't know what to call the slogan, but, you know, I want to, I want people to share their story. I want right. to build trust with them. And then I want them to feel empowered. I want them to feel empowered for being, you know, 
pretty much 100% responsible for this individual. And I want them to feel proud at the end of the day that they were able to, you know, conquer and, and get through it. And I guess not, pro- not get through it, but even if, you know, they had, they had a fail and they didn't have a win that they were able to adjust their behavior in order to kind of cater to what was needed at that time. Um, you know, and then, yeah, they feel empowered to also advocate for themselves and take care of themselves. And, you know, I don't want to jump ahead, but I know you wanted to talk about, you know, how to advocate for yourself and self-care. And so that's another part of this umbrella of empowerment. It's empowering yourself as a care partner, empowering yourself as an individual, you know, empowering yourself as sort of a member of this team. Right. No, it's, it is really pivotal and, and to give the power to both the identified person with the disease process, but also what you said, you know, when, when a loved one might be trying to get through it. And there are those moments and times where you are trying to just get through. It's not every day or every moment, but there are going to be those days where it's just like, ah, as if you can't breathe and you just need the day to kind of be over and get a fresh start and a a do-over. Let's have a do-over. And how to not try to not show and share that with your loved one, even though you're having that type of day is, is a big challenge. It's, it's incredibly humbling and to acknowledge perhaps with our loved one that like, Hey, we're having an off day today. Like this is not going well. I I'm sorry that we're just not jiving or connecting or, you know, we're out of whack. I, I think even sometimes just acknowledging the elephant in the room takes the the pressure away, the air out of the balloon to be like, okay, it doesn't have to be perfect every day. It's not going to be perfect every day. That's impossible. It's just impossible. And it's too much pressure. Right. I know. I mean, the, the kind of the agility and the resilience that's needed as somebody caring for a loved one with dementia is just absolutely unmeasurable, you know, and that's where kind of this unpredictability comes in. And, you know, to face a situation that's unpredictable is really, really exhausting. And so I think that, you know, starting with the tools, you know, and when I, when I consult with clients, I, you know, try to figure out where their loved one or their spouse or their parent is in the disease and where they are too. Um, and then sometimes kind of making those situations more predictable can help, um, as best, as best I can to my knowledge of, you know, what type of dementia they have, where they are, what tools can you use, you know, what actions can you take, um, and sort of setting up a process, you know, step one, you know, step two, step three. And so they can, if there are certain situations that arise during the day, you know, how can we, you know, make that a little more, that challenge a little easier, um, whether it's bathing, whether it's grooming, whether it's eating, you know, whether it's just getting them out the door and getting them dressed to go somewhere, whether it's, you know, the time of day that they deal with sundowning, um, yeah, I think just looking at those patterns um, can help kind of alleviate a little a bit of that um, that unpredictability, which then causes, you know, somebody to be frustrated and annoyed and agile, <laughs> or not yeah. agile, but uh, 
nimble, flexible. Yeah, no, I, mm -hmm. I mm -hmm. um, and I don't know if it's true. My, my mother has Alzheimer's dementia and from the standpoint of the consistency and the routine for her having the same type of schedule each day really guides her and helps mm -hmm. so right. much. And right. I don't know if that's the case necessarily with all people, but that's been our experience. And definitely when I've worked with other people, it tends to work well. Right. Has that also been your experience? Yeah, I think, I think it does work well. Um, so depending on where they are in the stage, stage if you, if, if the person is still mobile and, you know, quite physically active, then enforcing a routine is, is a really good idea, but also being very, very, very loose with that. You know, I think that there's, there's no point in battling with somebody, you know, if they refuse to wear a certain shirt or if they refuse to, you know, want to go outside at the time of day, if you think, oh, we always go on a walk at 10 AM. I, I don't, I don't ever try to set those type of ground rules. Okay. Um, I think also a really good idea is to, you know, think of what was the person doing before they got the, before they were diagnosed with dementia. Did they go to work every day? Did they pack lunch every day? Um, you know, let's, let's say we got to go to work. Let's pack your lunch. Let's get them a lunch box. Um, if you think of, you know, that generation that are, you know, in their seventies and eighties, they probably did, you know, especially these blue collar workers, they probably packed their lunch every day. You know, let's get them out the door. Let's walk them around the block. Um, and those are sort of those routines that they might remember. It's not the routine that they've established now. It's what they used to do in the past, um, especially with, with my mom. She was an art teacher. And so we used to do an art project every morning. And, you know, she would sit down and I'd say something on the lines of, oh, this is something, prepare this for your students because they want to see your art project. And I remember when she got, when she, when she was, um, when, when her, when the, gosh, the disease, we'll have to edit that part out. When the disease progressed a lot and she was nonverbal and she was just mumbling and, you know, she would move her hands um, really quickly and have kind of these little hand spasms. But she, I bought those giant, black and white fuzzy posters that you got for kids. Yes. And I don't know, they had those when I was, when I was growing up, just those giant posters from Amazon and these big markers. And she would just sit there and she was just drawn, 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 drawn. And she absolutely loved it. And, hmm. you know, I was able to, I don't know, go take a shower or brush my teeth or something like that. Um, but I think, yeah. And so that was a really good activity for her. Um, that was part of her routine. Um, those things are, are great. And I want to comment on, not to pick on you, but in terms of the word that you use and why it, we feel so sensitive to it in terms of the disease or the term, mm -hmm. like it's, it's hard talking about this sometimes and not using that term, the disease, whether it's dementia, yeah. Alzheimer's, Lewy body or whatever. Mm -hmm. And I think, I think we feel so delicate about it because it's a person with this yeah. but it doesn't define them. However, as, as it progresses more, it seems as if it does because it's, right. it becomes bigger and bigger and bigger part of what we see every day. Right. And I think it's also hard because uh, dementia is 
So I guess just really quickly, dementia is the umbrella term. And I think they've classified about 83 different types of dementia. So Alzheimer's is the most popular, Right. (laughs) you know, everybody knows Alzheimer's. And so if you say dementia actually isn't a dementia, isn't a disease, it's the umbrella term. Um, And so when I, when I talk about it, I don't always want to just say, oh, somebody with Alzheimer's or somebody with FTD or somebody with, you know, vascular dementia. So that's just really quick, you know, that's just a, a quick way to sum up all of the dementia, all of the different types is to say dementia. Um, but where I was going with that is because it is so prolonged. I mean, from onset, I think it depends on the age. It can be anywhere from two. My mom is going on 12 years from her diagnosis. And I'm pretty sure, I, well, I know she had it before, you know, you, you just, anyway, so she's going on 12 years because she got diagnosed when she was 56. And now she's 68 and she had early onset. And so somebody in, with her physical capabilities, she was very, very physically healthy, physically active, you know, it's her brain decline. And so what I was going to say about that is, you know, somebody who might have been diagnosed with cancer, mm-hmm. I it's, you don't say, oh, the person with cancer, you just almost call them by their name. You would just yes. say, oh, Jane. And everyone just knows what they have. And I think because we talk about dementia and, and that person is living with it for so long. They're living with dementia for so long. And somebody who, somebody doesn't necessarily live with cancer for so long because it has, you know, the, the mortality rate is ex- more is speed, sped up um, just in the nature of the, of the disease. Right. Um, so yeah, sometimes I feel hesitant to say the person with the disease because it's almost exhausting. It's just, it's been going on for so long and they're slowly dying each and every day. And it's, it's hard and it's hard to talk about. It is. And I think it's hard to plan for. It's hard to know when you're first getting the diagnosis, like how long this journey may be. Like you said, if your, your loved one is healthy and they're younger, mm-hmm. like what that can or will look like, how you prepare for it, how much financial uh, wherewithal and resources you're mm-hmm. going to need. It is, it can be incredibly daunting to look at all of that. Um, it's, and as, as it continues forward, I think the self-care becomes a bigger part of what has to happen in order for families to have resilience to still be a resource for their loved one because right. this is this is not a sprint this is not even just one marathon perhaps multiple marathons you know mm-hmm. over and over and over right. and we we have to pace ourselves so from the standpoint of self-care that you do and or you suggest to those that you work with you know what are perhaps three or, or so of your favorite things that you use or do or go to and suggest that you find have been most helpful universally? Well, yeah, three things. <laughs> it's hard to narrow down. Or you can add more if you want. <laughs> when I like for me, I find a, a couple of different things. If I don't do my morning meditation or, or even if it's just five minutes in the morning, just mm-hmm. something for myself to ground me in the morning is huge. Right. Um, and of course I would like it to be more, but if it's five minutes, I'll take yeah, it. That's that definitely fine. helps. 
it definitely helps. Well, when I was caring for my mom, I did have, so we had a, a caregiver or a care partner live with us in the house. And I, you know, I worked um, a job outside of the house. Um, I think after we hired somebody to help out. Um, but when I was caring for her full time, I would have somebody come over and watch her. And I, I got really into yoga. Um, I'm also a certified yoga instructor and I've taught for several years in the Seattle area. And I did even teach over in Germany for a, a year. So <laughs> that's another story. That's awesome. Um, right. And so I got into yoga because gosh, I just needed that outlet. Um, and it's, it, you know, it's not for everyone, but I think, you know, any physical exercise. Um, also part of my self-care was almost was just reading and immersing myself in the information and the literature on dementia and hearing other people's stories. I think there's a huge amount to be said for kind of that Mm co-miserating. And I did have a support group. I I joined an, um, an Alzheimer's support group in the Seattle area for, it was called the Young caregiver support group for early onset. So it was very nuanced. It was very specific. Okay. And so that really, really helped. Um, so having that outlet, you know, people that I could, you know, share my story with who were in the same, um, the same situation as I was. And I joined that caregiver support group, I think all the way back in 2011, and I'm still a part of it. Um, That's amazing. It's, yeah, I, I feel so specific, Anna, that it, it really was so specific mm-hmm. your situation because not all groups do. That's amazing. Exactly. And that's a, that's the problem. And so, um, you know, and I, I absolutely, you know, honor and, and the, um, the Alzheimer's, um, association. And I think that that's another thing that I always help clients find their support group. Mm-hmm. Um, it is, however, it's only once a month and, you know, you don't know what kind of, or who's going to be in your group. And, um, of course, you know, what, what I offer is kind of like a more of an intensive program. So for somebody needing a little more, you know, handholding and kind of one-on-one support. Um, but I always offer to find them a group. Um, and now with, you know, COVID it's great because you can do pretty much from anywhere you can join from zoom. Um, but anyway, back to the self-care, yes, um, finding some sort of, you know, physical activity, um, easier said than done for a lot of people I know, and educating myself, um, you know, reading up on the disease. And that was the thing where I, I wasn't really fearful of what was going to come next. I wanted to know. Okay. And I felt there was a kind of a, a, a silence when I would ask, you know, well, how do people from Alzheimer's or di- dementia die? When, how do they die? what happens? What happens at the end of life? And I really didn't get answers until I figured it out for myself, which was kind of odd. And that could be a whole other podcast. On that. So the doctors, <laughs> do you think they didn't like going there or that they didn't know, or perhaps both? I, I think that they were afraid to tell me something wrong. They were too afraid of, I think that you know, generally in the medical field, people are kind of apprehensive to tell you something fully because maybe you'll, 
you know, it'll, it'll, you'll come back and say, oh, this happened differently or that didn't happen like it. And so I was, I wasn't really looking for a hundred percent. I need to know exactly, but I wanted to have an idea and it really wasn't until, um, I just figured out for myself and I learned of other people who had frontal temporal lobe dementia, who were young onset, who had passed away and, you know, what ailments, what, what ailments do they have, what their end of life looked like, you know, and asking peers really that they gave me straight answers. Um, so, and I think that's also important to know that, you know, there's certain, I don't know, maybe there's just, you know, laws that, doctors and nurses have to abide by that, you know, they're, they can only say certain things and they, you have to kind of fill in the, you know, fill in the pieces yourself. Um, and I'm thankful and and grateful that there's a whole community out there of, you know, of end of life planners and death doulas and, and people like that who can be a little more upfront about those issues, um, than doctors and nurses in in the medical field. Um, and, 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 Rightfully so. I mean, I don't want them to, you know, say something that people are going to, you know, go back on and. and right. No, I, I think it probably is a little bit of a, a fine balance, too, because they don't want to take away our hope, but still to be practical mm-hmm. and know what's coming ahead. Right. I, I think it's a little bit of. Right. All so, of I mean, I, I also learned a lot about kind of end of life with dementia and, mm-hmm. you know, it's almost like, for example, you know, 12 years into the disease, my mom is on comfort measures only. And, and that really means comfort measures only. So, um, about a year and a half ago, right before COVID hit, she got a infection and she was rushed to the ER and they called my brother in the middle of the night. And my brother said, you know, he was a little discombobulated and they just wanted to push antibiotics. They said, she needs antibiotics we want to push antibiotics. They didn't know anything about her. They, I don't know if, I don't know if they had her chart. There was really no one to advocate for her. And they decided to put her on antibiotics and she didn't, she wasn't eating for about three days and she was put on hospice. Mm. And we thought that it was her end of life. So we started planning her end of life and family flew out and then she just bounced back. Because she had and, an infection and that's all she Yeah, did. exactly. Mm-hmm. However, and to be completely honest and blunt, I am, I am at the point, she's 12 years into the disease. She is bedridden. She needs full care. She, she can't talk or notice or recognize anybody. And I think she gets pureed food. Mm-hmm. And because of that quality of life, I am 110% ready for her to pass on. And I've been that way for a few years. I wasn't, I wasn't like that always, but I have been, been like that. And I can hundred percent say that if she was to get an infection, I want to keep her comfortable. That is the most important thing to me, but she's not getting antibiotics, you know? And so what in the situation in that hospital, right. When she comes in there, it's, you know, the doctor is trying to just save that person almost, but they don't really know much about them. And Right. And so talking about an end of life for somebody with Alzheimer's and um, any type of dementia, it's um, yeah, they just, they, they, their brain shuts down. And, you know, I've, I've learned actually that, you know, 
not eating is actually a very peaceful and, and peaceful way to die. Whereas before I was very anti, um, what's it called? The withdrawal of life withdrawing. Yeah. The or it's a withdrawal right. of feeding. It's right. And as long as they put it up to her mouth, Mm-hmm. And that intuitive behavior, you know, that innate nature of, you know, taking the bite or trying to taste something, because that is something that the patient will not, I don't want to say patient, the resident mm-hmm. will not lose for the longest time. So you put it up to their lips. Mm-hmm. And since they've been doing that since they were babies, so they're going to try food. And so there is a, there is a law in Washington state that the care, the care home has to attempt, um, uh, feeding. feeding yes yeah nice well and then in california we have this it's it's newer uh called the pulsed forms so mm-hmm. it's so that if emergency services come into the room like they have it there and they know right. that there are dnr and all those type of things and i didn't know about that it was when i was a social worker we weren't using that and so when we put mom in an assisted living environment that was something that I became aware of mm-hmm. yeah we have uh, pulsed we have pulsed yeah, I mean and she had one she had one that said comfort measures only but I guess that's up for interpretation whether or not antibiotics makes her comfortable which of course it does well and I also think a lot of times like it is graveyard shift perhaps in the middle of the night and maybe they don't see it they don't look like you, we can do everything that we're supposed to have done with signing all the documents and have the papers and everything there. And all it takes is one person doing what they think is the best as a medical care provider. Right. And all of a sudden they're, they're doing aggressive, what we consider mm-hmm. aggressive care for our loved one when we just wanted supportive palliative. Care. Yeah. Yes. However, looking back at the past, I mean, and then it was really hard because a month later uh, COVID hit and there was a, you know, the quarantine mandate and I wasn't allowed to see her because I wasn't an essential worker and for about a year I could only see her through a window and that was really hard um you know but I have to say since I've been vaccinated and she got vaccinated um I have been able to go there and and this is something where I I really enjoy talking about this because it really really plays to what she has left and she does have stuff left and so you know, maybe if she had moved on and she had passed away over, you know, a year ago, I wouldn't have had these, you know, special moments that, you know, give me strength and give me a little bit more, you know, meaning for what I do, but I was able to visit her. And, you know, my mom was raised, she was raised very Catholic because she was a devout Catholic for many years. And of course I was raised Catholic and, you know, know those, the prayers, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I'll never the forget them. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Right. Um, but, you know, one thing that I learned from my Uh, consultant training is, you know, you retain on the, you retain on the right side of your brain and in within your right side of the brain, you hold rhythm and that includes prayer, poetry, and music. And so those three things, um, I think they say 85% of people who live with um, dementia still retain that part of the right side of their brain. So you're losing on your left and retain on your right. And that is you know, if you, I, I would I would say prayers in her ear. I let her listen to, um, you know, ear pods and, you know, music that she used to listen to. And I just, I see her eyes really come alive and it's subtle. It's so subtle, but I see it in her. And I know that I've, you know, come across other people in the community who have loved ones with dementia, who is far along as she is. And 
they do certain things like that. They play music and they talk to them and they see them, you know, kind of dancing in their own way. And her eyes are just sort of dancing and, and a little bright. And I know her vision is really bad because I know that your vision um, declines with the disease. Um, but I just see it, you know, and I don't, I wouldn't have had that, those moments. Right. And so I think it's just, you know, the universe, the higher power saying, you know, you still, your mom is still here for a reason and, you know, she's going to go in her time. Um, and I know how that's, I, I feel like I'm more prepared on how that's going to happen, you know, with right. getting, getting the whole sign, the, the infection and all that. Um, right. but I'm at peace with it. I'm at peace with it. And that's something that I can honestly say. And I, you know, cause I've really been, you know, this has been, she's, she's been, this has been going on for over a decade. Right. And so I've, I've seen it all and I just hope to give clients the insight into you know, how they can manage their day-to-day, how they can see the end, the light at the end of the tunnel, how they can see the good in this really, mm-hmm. right. Coming from a place of persistence and, you know, overcoming these obstacles and not looking at it as, you know, not looking at it as they are a victim and why is this happening to them? Why is this happening to my parent? And I thought that, I thought, I think that too often. Yeah. And I, well, I, yeah. I think yeah. it's, it's almost impossible not to sometimes go to that space, but to come back and, and realize that these, these situations force us to really look at our time with our loved one and and look at those moments and, and value how precious they are, whether it's, you know, holding their hand or, or having that talk or giving that hug. I too couldn't go into the facility. I think it was maybe nine or 10 months uh, where I couldn't go. And we were able to later meet outside, like in a patio area, uh, gloved and masked and six feet apart, but we couldn't see her. So no, that was super challenging. And I had to get mom more care support during that time because with assisted living, they just, especially with staffing issues during COVID, just weren't able to provide the support that she needed. Um, and it, it does get tricky from that standpoint. And I'm curious, though, one question that I was wondering about, have you ever seen or experienced families getting an a- inaccurate diagnosis as to the type of dementia they had and how would how would a family even know if it's a misdiagnosis because you know when we went through the assessment process it was multiple hours of testing through through mm-hmm. a neuropsych evaluation which mm-hmm. that in and of itself like i think that is such a crude way of testing a human because it automatically it's a test and you're put on defense and you're nervous and it's so mm-hmm. long. It's just right. archaic. Yeah. Uh, oh, absolutely. I'm <laughs> yeah. I, I'm curious about that because I feel like I often wonder, like, did we miss something? Is there something more? Because sometimes mom has like many good days and then there's like the hole in the Swiss cheese where we're like, oh, not so much. Okay. Yeah. And, and then she goes back. It's just hard to know. Something. Right. Well, I think, you know, from it's, it is, it is impossible really to diagnose, um, 
fully until the person passes on. That's that's truth. The fact is it, you cannot diagnose somebody. You can do, you can try to the best of your ability, to the best of the medical profession ability right. to diagnose somebody and to give um, some insight into, you know, what you can expect, but until they have a brain biopsy, because your brain is so intricate and every single case of dementia will show up, will exhibit differently. And they do the best that they can with the knowledge and the, and I guess, and you're right, those tests are hard. And I think one thing is trying to change that. And my mom had, I took her to three different neurologists um, because I wanted a second and I wanted a third opinion. And, you know, I do remember her going into taking the, the quicker tests where you have to draw the clock and you, they ask you what floor you're on and you, they ask her what year it is and what season it is. And, oh, I remember sitting through those and she got everything wrong and it was sad and it was hard. And she did the, she did the long two, I think four hour days of the, um, neuropsychological testing. And that was, you know, that's, that's hard. That's, you know, to anybody to be stuck in a room with somebody being asked a bunch of questions. Um, it's not, I don't, I don't, I don't like that test either. (laughs) Um, but one thing that I learned was, so my, yeah, my mom was diagnosed with frontal temporal lobe dementia and early onset Alzheimer's and it's almost a little broad. And then I remember going to the Alzheimer's conference in Seattle, probably for maybe three years after she was diagnosed. And there was a, a breakout session, a really specific session on FTD, frontal temporal lobe dementia and how it shows up. And I remember sitting in that room and thinking, wow, yes that's it. And that's it. And this, oh, she did this. Oh, she did that. Oh, she did exactly that. And it was kind of a lot of clarity and it was sort of this light bulb had, you know, burnt out earlier and then it went on again. And then I did a lot more reading and research on frontal temporal lobe dementia. And so I think you just, you track the patterns and behaviors and, you know, cause a doctor and a nurse, they are, they only have so much time to sit with you and to find out you know, all the stuff that they can. And so what did they do before and what's different and what's changed? And so, um, you know, that also is really great with, you know, my program because I do meet people on a daily basis or not daily basis, but a weekly basis. Mm -hmm. And a lot of them are, you know, one person is confused on, you know, what their loved one has. Um, They got a diagnosis, but, you know, they're still, somewhat functional functioning. And, um, I mean, and I can't give a diagnosis. I can't say, Oh, I think it's this or this, but I can say, okay, well, communicating with somebody who has this form of dementia, let's try this and let's try communicating with somebody with this form of dementia, you know, let's try this. And so kind of trial and error in a way. Um, and we're not going to, at the end of the day say, ah, they have, you know, they have this type of dementia, not this. One. Right. <laughs> I mean, I just talked to somebody about um, it was, um, I think it was part of my mentor group with the team of snow. And they said, Oh, it sounds like your mom had, you know, uh, you know, more of the vascular or something vascular. And, and I go, well, that's new to me. You know, I never heard that before. Right. Right. No, it's, it is interesting. My mom, when I keep wondering, my mom has a lot of vascular issues, but we've been told it's not necessarily vascular dementia. Mm-hmm. It's just, yeah, it's, it's hard to understand. They all intertwine. 
you know, at, at one point I thought my mom might have Parkinson's because she had, she had a lot of twitches. And one of the reasons I did move her into a home was because she had, she ended up having seizures. Um, so she had three or two grand mal seizures in a two week period. Um, but what I learned later is that she had an undiagnosed UTI. And oh. so that gave her twitches. Okay. That gave her twitches and trembles. That gave her trembles. And, mm-hmm. um, and so, you know, I was thinking, oh, maybe she, this is the onset of Parkinson's and I, right. yeah. So, and, and, so and, yeah, it's so, yeah, interesting. they're so inter- intertwined. And I think, you know, you take the brain a hundred percent of the brain and, you know, you could have, you know, 45% is Alzheimer's and 5% is frontal temporal lobe. And mm-hmm. I mean, who was it who was recently diagnosed with, um, the gluey body dementia was, um, Robin Williams, you know, and he passed away because he was, I mean, this is, this is my opinion, but you know, he didn't die because he was depressed. He died because he had Louis body dementia and he didn't understand what was going on. And it was undiagnosed because people were trying to cover up for him and he was trying to cover up for himself mm-hmm. and that pushed him over the edge. Right. Right. That's, it's profound, but it's true. And we, I, I think so, ma- so many of these things where it, it feels like it should be shameful and it's not like, why are we embarrassed of it? And why are people not comfortable saying that I have Alzheimer's, that my mom included, she, if I yeah. hear that she is someone that has that, she gets frustrated or upset. Because she doesn't want that to be how she's seen. And a lot of people won't necessarily see that. She presents incredibly well. And and her generation with the makeup and the hair and the clothes and, you know, all Mm -hmm. those things can be quite convincing. Um, So it's, it makes sense that it's confusing and tricky and, and not Mm -hmm. a linear path. And, and like you said, until unfortunately our loved ones pass, we won't necessarily know. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it just, it's, I think it's just so valuable to, for people to get, to, to trust in, in somebody who's going to guide them and help them along the way. And, and whether that be, you know, a coach or a consultant or a therapist, I mean, I, I come from a very strong, I, I was, I started therapy when my mom got diagnosed. Um, and I think there's a place for that. Um, and there's a lot, there's a lot of help out there. And I think, you know, it's important to just figure out what you need. Um, I think the counseling one-on-one is, is important to have a safe space where it's just about you because so mm -hmm. often during this process, it's not about us necessarily as we manage our loved one's care because exactly. Yeah, we also have perhaps a spouse or kids and jobs. And, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. so to go to someone just one-on-one where for 50 minutes, it's just about you. I yeah. think it's a huge gift. Uh, if people can do that through their insurance or through a yeah. clinic, I think that's so right. Profound. And I do know about, I do know of programs who, I think if you are a caregiver, then you can qualify for free counseling. Okay. Um, at least, at least in Washington state, I qualified for, I think six sessions. Okay. Um, but 
really exciting. And um, for, for, for me, if, because I, I'm pursuing a certain, um, I'm pursuing getting my certified dementia, dementia practitioner certification. I have to send in some paperwork, but I'll be able to accept um, HSA and FSA. Oh, um, that's awesome. Which is, which is great. And I think can help a lot of people um, because I am private pay. Um, I don't accept insurance, but there will be an opportunity to pay with your health savings account. That's yeah, because that money is there. And so to be able to put that to good use is mm-hmm. amazing. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah. Super exciting. Well, good. Well, I so appreciate your time, Anna, and everything that you do and the service offerings that you provide. Uh, I think it's that your experience and your skills are a huge gift. And I'm grateful that you do what you do. And I, I want people to know how they find you, that you know your website, Instagram, list all the ways. Thank you. Yes, I I am almost overeager to help people because I, like I said, this has just been my, not, it hasn't even been, it hasn't been my dream at all, but it's, <laughs> it's hard. It's hard to say. I just, I fell into this path and I couldn't have asked for anything that's more, you know, up, uplifting and right for me. Um, and I would not have been here today had it not been for my mom getting diagnosed and, so I'm completely humbled by her to have allowed me to create this for myself, to create this consulting practice. Um, so I am on Instagram at your dementia coach and my website is your And you can email me at actually my, yeah, my information is just on the website. So I'll just, I'll keep it simple. Um, okay. And I can, I can coach and consult with anybody pretty much all over the nation. I'm not confined to Washington state because again, I'm not a licensed therapist. And so it allows me to reach a broader group of people mm-hmm. and right. And then I offer um, sort of a pack of um, like 10 coaching sessions that you can use kind of at your leisure. And I created that. And I think that was really great because you might not know when you need help. And then there's an intensive um, 12 week program. So we meet once a week. Um, But instead of it just being once a week and saying, okay, bye, I'll see you next week. um, I'm pretty much available around the clock. So if you are living, if you are caring for somebody who has um, significant decline and you need a lot of help in coaching and consulting, um, then I can be reachable. You know, if you are in a situation where, you know, I can't get my loved one to do this, I can't do this you know, I'm pretty much available behind the scenes and around the clock. So oh, that's amazing. Especially yeah. yeah. Grave, Which right here at hours are often the trickiest. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, I mean, I would say I'm not, I'm, I say pretty much from 8am till like 9pm. Okay. <laughs> you don't want to go crazy. You're like, yes, crazy all night long people. Okay. No, but I have had, I've had, had clients that, you know, they are, they don't know what to do in a situation and they get really uh, frustrated and anxious and they kind of shut down and they're kind of grieving in that moment. And their, you know, their loved one is having an, a sundowning issue and, you know, they call me right away and I kind of walk through that with them and, you know, first tell them, okay, if you're, if your loved one is safe, 
remove yourself from the situation. You know, you need time to breathe. You need time to like get your cortisol levels to drop and you need to, you know, maintain your composure, you know, and then let's walk into the room and let's walk through the process. Um, and it's hard, you know, it's not easy, but I think that is, there's something to be said for, you know, having a, a one-on-one, um, having somebody, you know, who has your back and who is going to kind of help you through that process. Um, I think, yeah, not being, not being alone and being in community, Mm -hmm. whether it's a coach or multiple people, the the space that you're creating is a community. It's remarkable Mm -hmm. to have, you know, other, like you said, peers where you can hear their situations and stories. And, and because of the breadth and depth of people that you touch, you can, you know, not without names, but you can share experiences from other cases to yeah. say, well, when we did this and this was helpful, mm-hmm. you know, exactly. this may benefit you yeah. and your family. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of that, you know, comes with, you know, knowing, you know, the more I learn about, you know, my goal is to have that, those, those families really open up to me. So I know that I know that their mother, their father, their spouse, you know, did this in the past and, oh, like, are they always trying to leave the house at, you know, 5 PM? Are they trying to go somewhere? Did they always go grocery shopping at 5 PM? Right. And they're just used to that. And that something triggers that they see something, they see a fridge, they see, they open the fridge, they see the car keys. And are they always trying to leave to go to the store at a certain time? They always, you know, and it's, you know, these tiny, tiny situations, they evolve into really, really big factors that can, you know, make somebody safe or not. Um, Anyway, there's just, there's, it's, it's almost, it is like a dance, like you said earlier, and it's like choreographing a routine to keep them safe and choreographing a routine that is going to make the daily, the day-to-day a lot, a lot smoother. Um, And at the end of the day, like I said, feel empowered, feel grateful, feel humble, and feel like you have the support that you need because everybody, everybody needs that. Everybody deserves that. Well, and I also love the the different package that you do with the the 10 sessions because our loved one situation changes and evolves with different levels. So when that, when we see that and all of a sudden they have a new question for you, like, oh, now my mom's doing this. Now what do I do? Like, I think that's a really valuable mm-hmm. way of, of still right. being a resource and a touch point to be like, yeah. okay. Yeah, I know. And I think I really thought about, I mean, I really put myself, I, I thought about myself as a caregiver, as a what, you know, there's this whole new, <laughs> this whole new hashtag millennial, the millennial caregiver. And it's people who are young adults who are in their late twenties, who are caring for their parent, who are in their late fifties and sixties. And that's exactly where I was back in 2010. I, I moved home from Germany to care for my mom. I was living abroad. I had a whole, I had a life over there. I had a relationship and I moved home to Seattle to care for right. her and dropped everything. And, um, yeah. And it's just, it's, you know, knowing what this, this person needs at, you know, 25, 26. Um, that's a lot. That's a lot um, to ask of a 25 year old. It is. It is. And you are transitioning from being somebody's daughter to being their caregiver and to dealing with incontinence and dressing them and getting them to eat. And it is, 
absolutely. It is so overwhelming and you lose so much of yourself. And I just empathize. And I, I just, you know, my heart goes out to everybody who's in that situation. And I can honestly say that I've been there. And I think that's what makes you different. So that, you know, you've been on, now you've been on all the sides in terms of Mm -hmm. experiencing it with your mom and, and being a resource for others. And I, so it's, it's a gift. It's a huge gift. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you. Yeah. Happy to have turned it into this business. Um, Eternally grateful. And, you know, just, I feel honored to give back to the community. Well, and that's why I, I love calling this podcast The Bridges We Build because you are a bridge. Like exactly. you, I know. I was thinking about that metaphor. <laughs> it's perfect. Yes, you are absolutely a bridge for many. So continue your very special and important work. We appreciate you and all that you do. And thank you for the information so that listeners know how to get in touch with you and access your information. And yeah, thank you. you know, it's yeah. I just, yeah, I definitely advise just booking a, a consult call. Um, we talk for an hour, um, just learn about you and the, the, your loved one with dementia, whoever has the dementia and we just go from there. Um, just, I get some, I get some insight into where you are in your journey, um, kind of what approach you're looking to take and, you know, and the complimentary consults are, like I said, complimentary, um, and kind of see if it's a good fit, you know, it has, has to be a good fit. So, right. No, I agree. Well, thank you again. Have an awesome welcome. day. Yes. We'll, we'll talk soon. And this right. is just rebuild with Anna Cantor as my guest. Thank you all for being thank here. Thank you. I appreciate you taking this journey with me today as we discuss the bridges we build. My hope is that this space is just that for you, a bridge. Please share with any others who may benefit from this podcast. As always, subscribe, rate, review wherever you listen to your podcasts. And ping me with suggested topics or guests because this space is for you. It's for all of you. You can reach me at Care with Abundance on Instagram or Facebook. And as always, I'm sending you much love. Have a fantastic day.